Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, certified religious transition and trauma recovery coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello and welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. Today we're going to do something a little bit different, and actually we're going to do something a little bit different for the next few episodes. I'm currently on a journey with myself, exploring one of my own internal parts. We've been talking about internal family systems therapy and working with our different protector parts and our exiled parts. And I noticed about a week before we left on summer vacation, that was about a month ago, that there was a part of me that was coming up that was feeling guilty about taking time off, guilty about resting, and even feeling anxious and overwhelmed about what that would mean about me and about what I'd have to do to earn that rest. I have a feeling many of you can relate because I've heard from several of you in my messages over the years, and there have been clients I've worked with one-to-one who've expressed this same feeling of guilt or shame or anxiety about resting. And so as I noticed this piece of me coming up, I decided, you know what? I'm about to take two weeks off of work, and there's going to be a lot of quiet time. And I think I'm going to invite this part of me on vacation with me so that I can take that quiet time to get curious, to find out what it's afraid of, to find out what it's trying to protect me from, and to work with it and befriend it and see if it has messages for me, see if I can understand it better, and see if we can't find healthier ways to show up in the world together. So this is tying in with internal family systems, and we will be referencing that with working with this part of us that feels guilty, that has a hard time being present without going a million miles an hour in our mind, this part of us that really struggles to leave work and productivity behind whenever we go on vacation, or even when we're just trying to watch a movie, or we're trying to read a book, or we're at the swimming pool with our kids, or when we're just trying to play to do something simply because we enjoy it, not because it's productive. So if you relate with this, These next few episodes are going to dig into not only my own personal journey, which I'm going to share vulnerably with you because I want you to be able to see what this looks like in real time, but I also want to normalize that all of us are on this path together. None of us have it all figured out. I don't care how many degrees you have. I don't care how long you've been working with these things. We're all figuring things out. So if I can share vulnerably with you and it helps you feel less shame or less guilt about experiencing this yourself, I am happy to do that. So these next few podcasts are going to be about what I've discovered, and I'm going to bring you along on the ride, both the personal and the geeky research, because for me, research is a joy. Now, before we go any further in the episode, I have a quick and easy ask. 
If you feel this podcast is helping you understand and accept yourself better, and if you feel these resources should be amplified so that more people have access to them as they deconstruct high-demand religion and family trauma, please take a couple of short minutes and head over to emancipateyourmind.org and make a $10 donation. It is so easy, and it's tax-deductible in the United States. Go to emancipateyourmind.org. The donation area is on the right-hand side at the top of the page under the words, Support the Podcast and Give a Gift. Click the monthly donation button if you'd like to automatically fund the research and broadcast each month so we can make sure that no person goes through religious deconstruction without emotional and mental support. Today, that support looks like digging into why we, as Americans in particular, struggle with guilt or even shame when we attempt to rest and recover. One of the things I love to do that feels like play for me, and play is a form of rest, is researching. I love to get curious and geek out on a topic. And so this first episode in exploring why we feel guilt when we try to rest is going to be the geeky part. We're going to actually dig into some of the research that came up whenever I was talking to this part of myself. As I was sitting with this part of myself on Venice Beach in California and saying, hey, I notice you're feeling guilty because we're sitting right here in the sand. We're watching our kids play. I'm not engaging in play with them right now at this moment. I was pretty tired. We had just gotten done having some wonderful visits with family, but it had been a lot of social time and it was our first day on our own on the trip. And so I'm sitting in the sand. My kids are running around. They're looking at hermit crabs over by the rocks where the waves are crashing and splashing. And I'm sitting a short distance away. And I noticed the guilt come up. And the guilt was like, you're not playing with your kids. You're not making enough memories. You're not working. You're doing nothing. You're on vacation. You're not even enjoying it. Like it was this voice that was like, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, I see you. I hear you. I mean, I'm in this crowded beach. There's people everywhere. It's the most crowded beach we went to, but my youngest had to see Venice Beach. I don't remember what movie we were watching, but he was like, I want to go to that beach. And I was like, okay, we'll go to that beach. So we went to Venice Beach and I'm sitting there with this voice that's just spinning. You know what that feels like, right? It starts to spin and you're like, oh my goodness, there's something inside of me. It's growing. It's getting bigger. And I put my hands on my heart as I'm often prone to do. And I didn't make a huge scene out of it because again, I'm surrounded by people. And I was just like, whoa, in my head, not out loud. (laughs) Whoa, I hear you. You are feeling a lot of things right now. Let's slow down. And I just said, I'm here with you. I'm listening. And I'm deep breathing. I'm like, let's slow down. Tell me what you're feeling. And this part of me was like, you know, you came all this way on vacation so that you could spend time with your family and make memories and you're not doing enough. You're not making memories and you're not working. Like, what are you doing if you're not doing something? I sat with that part of myself and as I was asking it to show me more about itself and to show me what it wanted me to know, what came up 
interestingly enough, was a picture of the American flag in my head. And as I asked it questions about this American flag, what came up were the words, the American dream. Now, I've never consciously thought I'm supposed to fulfill the American dream. I haven't really even thought about what the American dream means, but I think this idea is pretty deeply embedded into most of us. This idea that, as Merriam-Webster's dictionary says, it's a happy way of living, you know, the house, the kids, the car, the white picket fence. It's a happy or idealized way of living that is thought of by many Americans as something that can be achieved by anyone in the U.S., especially by working hard and becoming successful. And at the heart of this idea of the American dream, which I think many of us were programmed to believe we're supposed to be achieving, that's what we're aiming for. That's what success is. And I know there is a ton of inequality surrounding the ability to achieve the American dream. It is wildly unequal. The ability to get a quality education, the ability to get a good enough job, to be able to support a whole family, the ability to buy a house, like right now especially, astronomical, almost impossible for many young families to buy a house, the ability to even buy food, Right now, more than ever, I think we understand that the American dream is is not necessarily something that many would believe can be achieved by anyone through simply hard work and becoming successful. I think we understand that there are other factors at play. But this is what Merriam-Webster is saying, and this is what I'm thinking about on this speech. And granted, this was split seconds. I was not sitting there going, huh, the American dream on this beach. It just had this thought of, I feel like I'm supposed to be working hard. There's a certain level of success I'm supposed to be going for. It has something to do with the American dream. And this is what I'm thinking of. We're talking rapid fire thoughts, split seconds. But that led me to go home and to research, to pull up Merriam-Webster's definition of what is the American dream? What does that even mean? And I'm seeing these words working hard and becoming successful. And it really led me down this rabbit hole of trying to understand what that looks like in the United States in particular. Now, Pew Research in 2014 found that 73% of Americans believe that on a scale of 1 to 10, hard work is a 10 in predicting life success. 73% of Americans believe if you work hard, you'll be successful. Fortune magazine in 2016 found that Americans work 25% more than all other European countries. Now, something interesting to note is back in the 1970s, Europeans and Americans worked the same amount of hours. But there is a 25% difference between Americans and other European countries. We work 25% more. That is 258 hours more per year that we're working. Now, this paper was written by three economists, Alexander Bick of Arizona State University, Bettina Brugman of McMaster University in Ontario, and Nicola Fuchs-Schundeln of Goethe University in Frankfurt. And what they did is they did this study that looked at workers throughout their entire span. 
So we're not just talking about actively working. We're talking about unemployment. We're talking about vacation. We're also talking about retirement. And they found that American workers tend to work longer work weeks. So we tend to work more during the work week. We take fewer vacations. Did you know that Europeans, on average, take four weeks of vacation per year? Then on top of that, they tend to retire earlier than we do because they have guaranteed pensions like we used to have back in the 1970s, but we moved towards a 401k plan. So there's a lot more anxiety about our future. So we work harder. We're trying to make more because we're paying for our own health insurance half the time. We are responsible for our own retirement. Um, There's a lot more on American shoulders. Now, granted, we also pay a lot fewer taxes, but this kind of feeds into this idea that we need to work hard. We need to work more because there's a lot going on. And I think there's a lot of fear underlying this work ethic that if we're not working harder than other people, that we're not going to be successful, that we're not going to be able to retire, that we're not going to be able to afford this American dream. And I think this has a lot to do with our cultural values as well. In fact, in 2013, there was a paper in the Journal of Economic Behavior, an organization that tried to understand why Americans are so obsessed with work. And you know we are, right? You see people all the time working everywhere at the restaurant. They're working, you know, at their kids' recital. They're working at the beach. We're working all over the place. We go to these places and we continue to work. I have so many people in my social media feed that show their feet at the pool and they're like, just this is my office today. And there's part of me that feels like that's amazing. You can work from anywhere and it allows more freedom of where you can be. But then there's also a part of me that's like, yeah, that's a problem. That's sad because if you're going to these places where we're supposed to play and relax and you're working While you look at the pool, instead of actually playing and being present and allowing yourself to recuperate and be creative and playful and put away the work, then we're also creating another problem, right? We're creating this guilt about resting. And perhaps that's not a healthy thing in our life. So this paper in the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization really wanted to know why we were so obsessed with work. And wouldn't you know it, part of it has to do with religion. The 2013 paper, written by a group of Dutch economists, analyzed a sample of 150,000 individuals from 82 countries and found that those from Protestant societies had what was dubbed a Protestant work ethic. According to the authors, psychic harm from unemployment is about 40% worse for Protestants than for the general population. And this, they found, held true for non-Protestants living in Protestant countries. So let's break down what that means. There was a book back in 1905 written by Max Weber called The Protestant Ethic and Spirit of Capitalism. And there has been extensive research done on the tie between Calvinism, particularly the extreme Calvinism of the Puritans, which helped found the United States, and capitalism. And so there have been all of these studies over the past like 15, 20 years in particular that have really looked into, is there a tie between the Puritans and between this extreme Calvinism and capitalism and sort of the values that we have in American society? And so 
Max Weber, he argued that capitalist success stems from Calvinist values, which were the values of the Puritans who influenced much of the foundational culture of the United States. So Puritans were strict Calvinists. And we'll talk about why that's influential in just a minute. But when it comes to the USA, Puritans were like the OG fundamentalists. And being some of the first settlers in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, they had a profound influence on our country's economic development. So they were some of the first people here. So, of course, their values bled into the laws that they created. It bled into the way that the government was formed. And that's one of the reasons we're the most religious, wealthy country in the world. This is the foundation of how we operate. We operate from these puritanical principles that are embedded not only into our economics, but in the way that we educate our children. It's embedded into our justice system and our prison system. It's embedded into everything. Americans look at life, generally at least, through a puritanical influenced lens. Now, Calvinists believed in predestination. They still do believe in predestination. But they believe that at birth, you were predestined to either go to heaven or hell. There was nothing you could do to influence it. And that, I imagine, was very scary. Think about that. You don't know if you're predestined for heaven or hell, but they were constantly looking for indicators of whether they were favored of God or not, whether they were predestined for heaven or if they were going to burn in hell for eternity because they had a very harsh view of what happened to you if you were going to go to hell. We won't even get into how abusive and toxic that theology is, but there was a great fear of what would happen if you're going to hell. And so, of course, the human psyche does everything it can to avoid harm. So they were constantly looking for indicators that they were destined for heaven. So some of the indicators might be things like you're beautiful. If you were blessed with a symmetrical face and a lot of beauty, perhaps that was an indication that you were favored of God. But another indicator was if you were successful financially, that could be an indicator that God favored you because he was blessing your business and you were reaping all of these benefits. So you can imagine that that lit a fire underneath people to be as productive and successful as possible because not only was this a society in which it was very strict the way that you obeyed all of the religious rules, but there was a lot of judgment flying around and there were a lot of harsh punishments that went around and it was kind of a harsh environment to live in. So you can imagine there were a lot of benefits to having a successful business and there was a lot of judgment and scorn and disdain that came from having an unsuccessful business or an unsuccessful livelihood. This idea of working hard for a livelihood, this idea of really giving it your all and your worth being tied to that is a deeply held puritanical principle that is embedded into American society. Now, because of that, imagine what it would feel like. Let's say you were having some success, but then you hit a rough patch. For whatever reason, your business began to decline because your health began to decline or because there was a death in the family. That could be seen as evidence that you're not favored. Actually, you are predestined to go to hell. 
and people might treat you differently. Like you guys know, you've deconstructed. How have people in your life treated you when they believe that you're no longer chosen? Differently, right? A lot of times they treat you worse. This was happening in puritanical society. So we've got generational trauma coming down the pipelines here. It's only been a couple hundred years. That's really not that long generationally for these things to be passed down. And they're reinforced by the laws and the education in our society. So of course these things are alive and well. They're becoming less a part of the fabric of our society, but they are still there. So it's not surprising that in this 2013 paper that was written by a group of Dutch economists when they analyzed a sample of 150,000 individuals from 82 countries, they found that those from Protestant societies, like American society, that was heavily influenced by a group of extreme Protestants, these Puritans, who were a branch of Calvinism, that they had what was dubbed a Protestant work ethic. That means that they felt that work was really important to their sense of self-worth. And because work was a part of their sense of identity and self-worth, according to the authors, psychic harm from unemployment is about 40% worse for Protestants than for the general population. And this, they found, also held true for non-Protestants living in Protestant countries. If we have underlying beliefs that our worth and our acceptability are tied to our livelihood, then when we lose our livelihood, it means something personal about us. It's a source of shame. Because some of these underlying themes in the United States are that your livelihood is the source of your individual value. These are things that come from Calvinism. Your financial success is an outward indicator of God's favor. Like how many times have you seen hashtag blessed or this is a God thing? We have a deep belief in this, that our financial success is an outward indicator of God's favor, that God blessed us because somehow we're favored with God. And there's a sense of shame and worthlessness that comes if that livelihood goes away or we lose it or it diminishes, we start feeling like maybe I'm not favored of God anymore, or maybe I'm not as worthy as I thought I was, or maybe I'm not as acceptable now. And I love what this paper says. It says, Protestantism may not make you rich, but it sure makes you unhappy if you're not rich. So the psychological underpinnings of this work ethic Well, yeah, it might drive you to work and to produce like a machine if that doesn't pay off with wealth. If it doesn't pay off with success, then it also has a great psychological price. I would argue it has a great psychological price even if we are successful because we often produce at the expense of our health and well-being. And I love this quote too. It says, as hard workers attempted to prosper in business in order to show they were God's chosen ones, over time, hard work became the object in itself, particularly in the United States. We work hard because it's the American way. And it's the American way because the Puritans did it. The object became less over the years about showing that we were God's chosen ones and work itself became the thing that was valued. So you're a good American if you work hard. 
That's the underlying subconscious belief, particularly if you're working hard and you're being successful. That's all kind of tied together in the package. But we still have quite a bit of respect for people who show up and beat the bushes even when they don't get the reward that they're hoping for. Like There's this value around busyness and productivity in our society. Hard work itself is a national value. And so it would make sense that we would internalize some of this and that it would begin to kind of direct our behaviors and our feelings underneath the surface. We've been steeped in this since we were little children. We've been told that hard work is what is expected of us. We've been told that contributing members of society work hard. And there's even this idea that if you find a way to work smart instead of hard, that that's somehow not commendable. That if you're able to make an income, and it's changing, but there's still this underlying belief that I hear, especially in some of the older generation, that if you're not busting it, if you're not tired at the end of the day, then you're doing something wrong. You're being lazy. You're being slothful. And what we call this whenever we have this this shame, this guilt that comes up whenever we try to rest, they've coined a term for that. It's called internalized capitalism. And Anders Hayden, who's a political science professor at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, said internalized capitalism is this idea that our self-worth is directly linked to our productivity. You can't feel value in yourself for just being alive, for just being a human being. You have to be a human doing to have any value. And he says that internalized capitalism may look like feeling guilty when you rest, undervaluing your achievements, prioritizing work over your well-being. If you hear yourself saying things like, I should be doing more, or I should be further along by now. I've heard a lot of these things come out of my mouth. A feeling that you're only contributing to society if you're producing. So as I look back on that moment as I'm sitting there on the beach and I'm starting to feel this sort of spiraling sense of guilt, I was feeling like a bad mom because I wasn't actively engaged in making memories with my kids. I was feeling like a bad business owner because I wasn't actively answering questions. At this point, I had been away from answering questions, I think, for like four, maybe five days. So I wasn't actively answering questions. I wasn't communicating actively back and forth with people on email. There was part of me feeling anxious and worried that I was going to miss something important and it was going to make my entire business crash and that there was kind of this doom and gloom going on in the background of if I'm not being productive and and I'm not engaging in customer service 24-7, that somehow something bad is going to happen to me and to my business. And then you know what that feels like where suddenly your thoughts are spiraling and and you see yourself sitting homeless in a park somewhere nearby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was that. But then there was also this idea of, you know, if you're not working, what are you even contributing to the world? If you're not actively engaged in something. If you're just going to sit here like a lump on this sand, what are you contributing right now? Life is short. That was another phrase I heard in my head. Life is short. What are you doing? Why aren't you creating something? Why aren't you producing something? And so really getting curious with that part of myself led to a lot of this research where I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. 
yeah, I was taught some of those things. I was taught that the early bird gets the worm. I was taught that being idle was bad. I was taught that hard work is something we're supposed to be engaged in every single day. Now, Puritans lived a long time ago. I was not raised by any Puritans. I don't think you were either. But their ideas are still being taught over American pulpits. I was really curious, and this may be triggering. So if you're at a place where religious trauma is still really fresh and hearing anything coming out of the Bible or from mainstream Christian preachers' mouths, if that is going to feel really triggering, give yourself permission to either stop here, fast forward. I don't know how long this segment's going to go, but maybe fast forward for like 10 minutes and check in and see if we're where we need to be. But I wanted to check in and see what's being taught right now about laziness, about rest. And as I was tapping into what I was taught about rest, words like idleness, laziness, slothfulness, those were all kind of tied into my childhood self's definition of rest. So as I was sitting with this part of myself throughout the vacation, I noticed that this part of myself would interchangeably use words like rest, relaxation, and play, which are all really healthy, well-researched ideas. We need those things. And idleness, slothfulness, and laziness, which all have a negative connotation in our society. And so those words were being used interchangeably, which told me that this part of myself viewed rest the same as laziness, viewed play and relaxation as sort of an idleness or a frivolousness or a slothfulness. And so I was kind of curious about where that came from. And that led me to be like, okay, I'm going to go check out what's being taught over the pulpits. So justdisciple.com, the title of this article is, Is It a Sin to be Lazy? A Biblical Response. And it says, the Bible uses strong terms when dealing with laziness. Some of these are sluggard, slothful, and worthless. Already there, you can see that the idea of laziness is being tied to an idea of worthlessness. If you are lazy, you are worthless. This is what this preacher is saying, or this website is saying, that the Bible says. Now, granted, I know that the Bible can be translated a hundred, a thousand, a million different ways. But I think it's important to see that these ideas are still being taught over the pulpit. Laziness is a sin that can be easily swept under the rug, but God wants his people to work hard for his glory. So a godly people works hard. People who are favored of God work hard. And then this person talks about the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. You know the the parable of the talents. The master of the house gives three different servants three different amounts of talents. And talents were like an amount of money, a measure of money. So he gives them talents. And two of the servants, when he comes back from wherever he's been, give him his money. Plus, they've doubled it. They've, They've made interest on this money. And the third servant gives him his money back. He had buried it in the ground and he was afraid that he would lose it. He was afraid something would happen to it. And being afraid, he buried it in the ground and then gave back to the master what the master had given him. But the master gets really mad at the servant. Zero compassion in this story. 
Master gets really mad at the servant and calls him a slothful and wicked servant. Again, zero compassion. And throws this servant into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So now we've got this tied to the fear element of if you're not working hard and if you're not making an increase, some preachers are preaching that what that means is you're going to go to hell. And again, I know that there are other interpretations. What I'm telling you is from this website, this is the interpretation. There are people that are getting this interpretation from these scriptures. And then he uses Proverbs 6, 9, which says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed thief. And notice he says a little, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And what's going to happen if you give yourself even a little bit of rest, even a little bit of slumber, a little sleep? Poverty is going to come upon you like a robber. And want is going to come and mug you like an armed thief. So violence is going to happen to you. This like the violence of poverty is going to happen to you if you relax even just a little bit. Are you starting to see where some of this anxiety is coming from? And maybe some of this guilt is coming from some of this fear? There's this underlying idea, not just in our capitalistic society, which is built on Calvinist principles, but in our religions as well. This is being reinforced from the Bible, that if we rest or if we're seen as lazy, that bad things are going to happen. We might go to hell. Poverty is going to take us. We're going to be in want. Like I always picture those ads of the Ethiopian kids whenever I was a child that were on TV where you could see the rib cages and you knew they were starving. And as a child, like I just remember sitting and contemplating that and imagining what that would be like to not have enough food and to be starving. And so that's what want, that's what I associated want with when I read the scriptures, when it talked about being in want, I would picture that in my head. So we're talking about starvation. We're talking about extreme poverty. We're talking about being cast out into hell. And then this preacher goes on to say over and over again, Solomon talks about how laziness will lead to poverty, pain, and even death. God doesn't want these things for us. He wants us to live full and abundant lives. And I was like, wow, okay. How many people confuse rest and laziness? I got the idea that rest and laziness were kind of the same thing because I was told that I was supposed to rest from my labors on the Sabbath day. But resting from my labors on the Sabbath day sure looked a lot like work. Resting on the Sabbath meant attending all my meetings It meant doing my callings. These were jobs that I was supposed to do that I was asked, kind of voluntold to do in the Mormon church. And sometimes I'd have a small calling that would only take like an hour. And other times I would have a calling that would require a lot from me on Sundays. There were callings I had that would take, you know, four or five hours on a Sunday. So resting looked like getting up early getting my kids into their Sunday best dress, making breakfast, getting everyone out the door, praying, 
scripture reading, going to all of my meetings, fulfilling my callings, checking in on sick people, going to meetings, because if I were in any leadership callings, I would have additional meetings on Sundays. Sometimes it looked like fasting and going without food and water for 24 hours on this Sunday, and that was always exhausting for me. And then getting everyone ready for the work week, the upcoming week. So we would work, 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 work so we could rest on the Sabbath. But resting on the Sabbath was often a lot of work. Now, granted, I always made time on the Sabbath for a nap. But it was like a one-hour nap. And I would crash and totally pass out. And so I was really curious if other people maybe had some confusion around the difference between rest and laziness like I did growing up. And so I looked to see what some of the preachers of our day are saying. Again, from JustDisciple.com, they say rest is different than laziness. And every single one of these websites I visited was like, laziness is bad, rest is good. And I was like, okay, I, I like this. Like, there's a place for rest. There's a place for rejuvenation. There's a place for recovery. What do you have to say about it? And I want you to know, I took the top five articles that came up. When I asked, you know, what's the difference between rest and laziness in the Bible? That's what I typed in. These are the first five responses that came up. So I didn't go digging for responses that confused these concepts. These were the top five that came up. JustDisciple.com says rest is different than laziness. And the quote is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God gives us rest when we're working, when we feel like we don't have anything left, and when all we have to do is rely on Him. His rest and peace transcend all understanding, and we can access it through the Spirit at any time. So this guy says, rest is different than laziness, and then goes on to say, God gives us rest when we're working. So this doesn't include physical rest. This is some sort of spiritual or mental sort of rest that God can give us while we're working. Then the next site, which is applygodsword.com, said, The difference between laziness and restfulness is that laziness terminates on itself. The lazy man seeks to rest as an end goal in itself. Biblical rest is not done to idolize personal relaxation, but to relax so one will be better equipped to work for God. So like these are playing off of each other. So this guy says, if you're resting just to rest, you're being lazy. Like if you're just like, you know what? My body needs rest. I really could use some time off. That's laziness. If you sleep too long, that's laziness. If you do nothing for a day, that's laziness. The only time doing nothing or relaxing is okay here, is if you're relaxing specifically so that you are rested so you can go do more of God's work. Like this resting has to be in service of the work that you're going to be doing for God, which I tried that. I don't know if you tried that whenever you were highly religious, but I tried this whole idea of I'm taking a nap so that I can get up and do more work. And I remember feeling like it was an obligation to sleep. Like it took all the joy out of it. It took all the joy out of resting and relaxing. Like this article actually even said like, it's okay to watch a movie. It's okay to read a book as long as you understand you're doing that so that you can be a better servant to God afterwards. So I just feel like that's a little bit of a catch 22 because if I'm resting to be productive, I'm still being productive. Like, it's not rest. It's not relaxation. 
if the whole point of my play is to produce something, then it's not play. It just feels like there's a lot of pressure on this rest. If you're like, well, you can rest, but you got to check your intentions. Are you resting so that you can get up and work harder when you get up? Or are you resting because the rest feels good? If the rest feels good, then shame on you because you're being lazy and that's a sin. And then the next article was from a lady. It was called offthehearth.com and it was an article for mothers and women. And she gave like a short little blog post where she talked about the difference between whether you're being lazy or resting. And I felt so bad for this lady because she's pregnant and she was talking about how difficult her pregnancy was. And then she was talking about how she needed a lot more rest, but she had to be really careful that she didn't cross that line into laziness because laziness is a sin. And then she quotes Second the Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, and a couple of other scriptures that basically tell you why being lazy is so bad. And she says, everyone should work and those who don't shouldn't be allowed to eat. Because that's what that Second Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12 says. Like, can you imagine you're pregnant, you're throwing up everywhere, you feel like crap, you're in that first trimester And you can just hear the shame as she's talking about the chores that haven't been done and the laundry that's piling up and how she's not managing the house as well as she should because her body is not doing okay. Her body is reacting violently to being pregnant. And these are the scriptures she's turning to that are saying that if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Like, everybody has to work. They all have to contribute. And so she goes on to say, how can you tell if you're being lazy instead of resting? And she gives kind of a compare contrast list. I'm not going to give you the whole list. But one of the things I thought was crazy is she says, if you feel apathetic, you're being lazy. You're not resting. You're being lazy. No, love. You might be numbing. (laughs) If you're feeling apathetic while you're sitting there watching a show or you're sitting there reading something's going on emotionally. You might be trying to escape. You might be feeling depressed. Apathy is kind of an alarm bell that something is going on for you. It's not a sin to feel apathetic. It's information that something's going on inside and things are not okay. And she said, if you procrastinate, You're being lazy. You don't need rest. No, well, we procrastinate often when we're afraid of failure or when we have deep insecurities or when it's something we don't want to do anyway. Sometimes we procrastinate because we're like, yeah, that's not something I want to do. I'm not interested in doing that. Your inner self is saying, no, no, thank you. I don't want to do that. And so procrastinating is also a way our body communicates things to us. And then last, she said, you feel guilty about resting. Now, if you're feeling guilty about resting, it's not evidence that you shouldn't be resting. It's evidence that you have something going on inside of you that's either telling you it's naughty or sinful to rest, or you might have this idea that your self-worth is tied up in how productive you are, or you might have this idea that you're not lovable or you're not acceptable if you're not producing something or achieving something that was a crazy one i was like oh i just wanted to reach through the screen and like hug this lady and be like 
You're worthy. You're valuable. You're pregnant. Allow yourself to sleep because heaven knows once you have that baby, you're not going to be sleeping for a while and you're still going to be feeling guilty that you're not getting as much done. Now, here's the thing. When the lines are blurred between laziness and rest, doesn't it make sense that we'd feel guilty for it and try to avoid both of them? If we don't know where that line is, and if one is a sin that, you know, according to justdisciple.com, the master throws you into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth if you're lazy, and if you don't provide an increase if you're not productive... Like, if hell is awaiting you, or if poverty is awaiting you, or if God's not going to bless you or accept you, and if rest is good, but rest is only what you do when you're consciously rejuvenating yourself so you can go work some more for God's kingdom, can you imagine? Like, that is a really confusing line to walk, and it makes sense that we'd become avoidant of both. We don't want to go to hell. We don't want to be in extreme poverty. We don't want to be in famine. We don't want to be rejected. So we might develop these guilt mechanisms as a way to protect ourselves from these scary ideas so that we keep working and keep producing. Now, before we go on, I just want to say something really quick about laziness. Laziness gets a really bad rap especially in American culture. And I want you to know that if you do feel like, oh, I'm being lazy, I'm not resting, I really am just being lazy, like that is not a personal failing. But it's a warning sign from our bodies and minds that something is not working. And I want to talk about this more in depth here in an episode soon. I want to talk about laziness and this idea because if you can't make yourself get off the couch to do something, if you can't make yourself get started on that project at school or work, if you can't make yourself like be productive and do what you feel like you're supposed to be doing work-wise, if you can't achieve things, it's not because you're this like slothful, wicked, bad person. It's because emotionally and mentally there's something going on inside. So I want to explore that more with you, and we will, but it is way too much information for this podcast. Just know if you're like, no, I'm definitely lazy, um, and if there's shame or guilt that comes up with that, just get curious with the lazy part. It's there for a reason, and it's trying to communicate something to you about what's going on inside of you. I'm going to tell you right now, I actually don't believe that laziness exists. I believe that what manifests and looks like laziness is actually a symptom of something going on inside. I don't think we're like, you know what? I don't want to take care of myself. I don't want to work and be creative. I don't want to have relationships. Like, we don't do that without there being some deep inner reasons why we don't want to do that. So just know that that manifestation is not because you're broken or less than or not worthy. It's because there's something going on inside. There's probably trauma or depression or limiting beliefs. Like there are things going on inside of you that are trying to communicate with you. And that's really our small step forward today is if you notice yourself feeling guilty about resting, about relaxing, about playing, about going on vacation, if you feel yourself feeling anxious or overwhelmed, 
take some time to recognize that that's how you're feeling and invite it into a conversation and get curious with it. Ask it questions. If you need to know what questions to ask it, go back to the previous two episodes where we talk about working with protector parts in internal family systems. Allow yourself to tap into that and ask it what it's trying to do. What is its intention? Ask it what it's afraid of. Ask it what it needs from you to feel safe. Spend some time getting to know it. Spend some time getting curious with it. Spend some time acknowledging it and give it a space to work with you for solutions. The more we can do that, the more we can give this part of us space to speak, the more objective distance we create between us and this part so that we're not so enmeshed. So it's not like we are this guilty part. We are the person that can't relax, but it's just a part of us that has a really hard time relaxing, a really hard time being present, a really hard time going on vacation or getting the sleep that we need. It's not all of us. There's a part there that is worried about certain things. And maybe one of the things it's worried about is this idea that our worth is tied into our productivity and into our success. And this kind of internalized capitalism idea that if we're not constantly producing, that we're not contributing to society and that we should be doing more and that we should have accomplished more by this point in our life. In the next episodes, we're going to talk about some of the other possibilities for why we might feel some guilt around rest, some of the things I learned from my internal part. This was one of the things, but there are a couple more things that come up that keep us from feeling safe resting. Because remember, if we have protector parts, and that's what this is, this is a protector part that is using guilt in order to protect us from pain or harm. And it feels really painful to feel inadequate. It feels really painful to feel insecure or to be afraid of being rejected or abandoned. It can feel painful if others are judging us because They were brought up in the same value system, especially if we decide to live contrary to that value system. We might have a fear of poverty, and maybe it's trying to protect us from the pain or the harm that comes from extreme poverty or from starvation. Or we might have a fear of failure and what that means about us as a person. So understand that our guilt is there for a reason, and it's trying to communicate with us. It's trying to protect us. One of the things it might be trying to protect us from are the ideas that come from this like Calvinist capitalism. But we'll be exploring some of the other reasons we might feel guilty or anxious or overwhelmed when we try to be still, when we try to be present, when we try to play or rest. I look forward to seeing you in those episodes. Thanks for joining me today, and I will see you next Sunday.